The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Season two, punk rock versus the lizard people, the exile. Versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Mod Log 9 Accomplices. I was standing behind the locked door to Ground Control Arcade, peering through the dark window out at the empty street in the middle of the night. It's 3 a.m., Emma said, placing a gentle hand on my shoulder. No one's out there. I turned to look at her. Her brown hair was drawn up in a high ponytail, her eyes more thoughtful than usual, her lips a reassuring smile. The arcade was lit only by the glow of street lamps and moonlight from outside, the only noise a few cabinets still beeping away. Before I could say anything, there came a frantic pounding on the door that made us both lurch backward as if the door was about to be kicked in. Outside the window, Becky was shivering, tapping her foot impatiently. It's freezing out here, she shouted. Emma and I both looked at one another and took a deep breath. I opened the door, and Becky hurried inside. Is anyone else here? she asked, arms folded, her posture hunched. Not yet, I said. Okay, Becky, listen. You guys are freaking me out, she whined. You can't just call me in the middle of the night and get me out of bed to come meet at an empty video game place. Video game place? I asked. Whatever it's called, she fired back. Why is it so dark? Where is everyone else? What happened? Is everyone okay? Becky, calm the hell down, I said. Remember those weird NARS posts we read earlier? Oh my God, she said. Did something happen? Are you in trouble? Are we all in trouble? I looked at Emma. She sort of shrugged. 
I turned back to Becky. We're not in trouble, I finally said, but there's something I think everyone should see. Becky shuffled backward as if I'd just told her the room was full of spiders. What is it? She whispered. I looked around the mostly dark arcade. It's uh, playing video games, I think. Becky leaned forward apprehensively, then bolted upright as if from an electric shock at the sound of another knock on the door. I dashed to the entrance, unlatched the lock, and opened the door for Connor, Barrett, Paul, and Jade, who had all filed out of Barrett's Ford Aerostar minivan. This is awesome, Jade said as he stepped inside. What is? I asked. Sneaking into ground control in the middle of the night. Does Power Surf know? I looked over at Connor, who just shrugged, seemingly half asleep. He gave the keys to Connor, I finally said. Nolly, Jade said quietly, peering around the room. Let's play Shinobi. Shinobi is bogus, Connor said, yawning. Oh my god, Barrett groaned, rubbing his face. Here we go with the ninja historical authenticity lessons. Weren't we all just together? Must we convene in the middle of the night? Dude, said Connor. Shinobi is not historically accurate. Ninja didn't roam the streets fighting mobs of gunmen with shuriken. Oh, so you were there, Barrett asked. What's a shuriken? Jade asked. I read about it, man, Connor said to Barrett. Shuriken are those things people call throwing stars, I said to Jade. What the hell are you boys talking about? Becky suddenly shouted. He drags us all out of bed into the cold in the middle of the night to some dark video game place, and you're arguing about ninjas? It was quiet for a moment, then someone whispered, Video game place? Look, listen, okay, I said, shushing everyone. You guys remember those weird NARS posts we read by someone called the Historian? They all stared at me in attention. Okay, well, someone reached out to me about it. Someone who has been talking to this Historian person. Apparently, the situation is pretty dire. How dire? Paul asked. I took a deep breath. Total end of the world shit. It was quiet for a moment. Bummer said Paul. But this dude, the one who reached out to me, has a plan. He sort of needs us for it. All of us. Oh, God, Becky said. I'm going to be sick. What in the world, Barrett said in frustration. What guy? What plan? We still don't know anything, and Becky is already getting sick. Enough with all this Obi-Wan shit, man. Are you sure this guy isn't just some NARS nerd screwing around with you? Pretty sure, I nodded. How? As if on cue, Isaiah stepped out from the shadows behind me, eliciting a predictable gasp from the group. Oh, hell, Barrett said. They're about to lock us up, aren't they? No, Isaiah spoke up, giving the group another start. We're going to lock them up. I squinted at Isaiah's lame threat. He shook his head. Well, not literally, but we're going to do something. We all stood there in silence. Why isn't anyone saying anything? Isaiah asked. 
Is that real? Becky whispered, her voice thick with panic. You asked us here, man, I said to Isaiah, embarrassed. Tell them everything. Tell us what we're supposed to do. I will, said Isaiah, popping his knuckles one by one. But first, do any of you guys have any quarters? I rubbed my face and sighed again. For what? Connor asked. Dragon's lair, Isaiah answered, lifting his chin. Waste of quarters, Connor said, shaking his head. May as well pick something else. It can't be one. Oh, yeah? Pretty much. Isaiah grinned. I can beat Dragon's Lair, motherfucker. Everyone was silent for a moment until Connor whispered, Wicked. Two coins dropped one after the other, that familiar clink of metal on plastic, and Isaiah's play of Dragon's Lair began. We'd all gathered around the cabinet as best as we could in the soft neon glow of the dark arcade. Isaiah's physical dimensions made it tough for everyone to see, so Becky, Emma, and Paul were all standing on plastic chairs behind us. On the screen, the game's dopey protagonist, Dirk, strode into an ominous castle, presumably the eponymous lair of the dragon. The game begins with immediate peril, no instructions of any kind. The player has no idea how to identify the actual gameplay. As I mentioned earlier, the visuals are generated by a laser disc, so the game itself looks like any other animated movie with high production values and nothing at all like the games on either side of the dragon's lair cabinet, Shinobi and Centipede. So you drop a quarter in, assume you're watching an animated intro, but then Dirk falls into a pit as he attempts to cross the castle's threshold. One of your lives has been expended. Before you can process what's happened, the whole 10-second debacle has begun again, and you're about to die a second time. The game progresses based on the intuition, or ESP, of the player, who is rapidly choosing between three controls, joystick, jump, and sword. As the cartoon plays, furry monsters approach, and you'd better start mashing that sword button like your life depends on it. 
Maybe Dirk will swing, but probably you were too slow, and here it comes. Game over. Much of the game's frustration is born from the assumption that there must be some way to actually succeed in the unforgiving lair of the dragon. If there weren't, why would the game exist? To get our quarters, I'd often told Connor. So there we were, in a mostly darkened arcade in the middle of a cold night in November. There was an honest-to-God space alien at the controls of Dragon's Lair. All of us crowded around him as though whatever transpired here would reveal what was to become of this bizarre chapter in our lives. This strange visitor and all this cryptic talk about conspiracy and revolt and the end of human civilization as we knew it. Well, guess what? I'd endured some heinous things in my life and I was still here. And yeah, I know lots of people have endured worse, but I am at the limit of my own narrow experience, and it seems that experience has led me here, for whatever reason. Emma had taken the whole story with much more composure than I had. She'd freaked out, to be sure, but she recovered quickly. After fleeing down the attic stairs when she'd first seen Isaiah earlier that night, I'd chased her to the living room yelling, Emma, wait! like a movie cliché. In a wild, inarticulate ramble, I did my best to explain to Emma what had transpired during the last day. It was a relief to explain why I'd been so weirdly aloof the afternoon prior, though I can tell she was disappointed to have stumbled upon the truth via happenstance rather than my honesty. I was freaked, I said with a shrug. She smiled, leaned forward, and kissed my cheek. This sent a jolt through my central nervous system more intense than discovering an alien in my room. I'm sure you've gathered by now that it was Emma who suggested we get everyone together that night. Upon hearing everything from both me and then an awkward retelling from Isaiah, she'd said we needed to tell the others. It doesn't sound like he's leaving until we hear him out, she said, pointing to Isaiah, who then nodded with a shrug. I'll never get everyone up into the attic in the middle of the day without my mom asking why. If she pokes her head up here and sees him, she'll wig out. Well, we'll never sneak him into my house without getting caught either. Is there anywhere we can go that's private and empty, maybe at night while our parents are asleep? Over her shoulder, I caught a glimpse of a big key, the one Connor had predictably left behind a couple of days ago. I've got an idea, I said. Not long after that, there we all were, gathered around Isaiah as he loomed over the dragon's lair cabinet with laser focus. Think he can really beat it? I heard Connor whisper from somewhere in the group. No, Barrett, who was taking all of this rather calmly, answered. Dirk attempted to cross the castle's drawbridge and, as always, collapsed through the wood. Hanging on for dear life, a purple monster rose out of the moat, and Isaiah gave the joystick a nearly imperceptible flick, to which Dirk responded with a swish of his sword, fighting the monster off and leaping out of the danger zone. Big deal, Barrett said. Even I can get past the first thing. I can't, Paul admitted with a whisper. Is he playing? Becky asked. Is this the game? For Christ's sake, Becky... Barrett groaned. Okay, well, I'm sorry I'm not Miss Video Game Master. Yes, he's playing, Jade said. This is the game, but he's about to die. Dirk ran down the castle's first chamber, arriving at three doors as the room around him began to shake. Another flash of Isaiah's wrist, 
and Dirk sprang to the right of the screen and through a new door that opened there. Connor and I looked at one another cautiously. Whoa, Jade said. We all watched as Isaiah avoided a collapsing wall and a flaming floor, then navigated the treacherous subterranean waters of the castle while riding in a barrel. He outraced a pursuing boulder, Indiana Jones style, destroyed a wraith, and battled a horde of floating ghost weapons, all without looking at his controls. After taking on another host of baddies and racing his way over a crumbling bridge, Dirk bested a black knight, navigated a maze, surfed a falling platform, swung from a flaming rope, and took flight on an iron horse. What the hell? Barrett whispered. He's incredible, Connor agreed. I'm talking about the game, Barrett said. What the hell is this nonsense? How could anyone ever learn to get through this mess? He's figured it out, Paul reminded us. Isaiah reacted to nothing. His gaze was cold and unchanging, his movements subtle and confident. A legion of cackling skulls surrounded his player. Dirk dismissed them with a wave of his sword. Bony Spectre set in on him and met the same fate at his blade. He's doing it, said Connor, rubbing his eyes in childlike disbelief. So this is the whole game? Becky asked again, shifting her weight to one hip. Damn it, Becky, Barrett groaned in frustration. Oh, shut up, Barrett, Becky said, giving him a shove. Dirk escaped an electrified cage in a wall of blue flames, fought off a lizard knight, collected a treasure, and decapitated several giant snakes. How long is this anyway? Paul whispered. We all stood there, eyes wide, as Isaiah avoided dozens of pitfalls, navigated even more complicated tunnels and doorways. Eventually, to our sustained disbelief, his player entered the chamber of the dragon. A sexy-in-a-cartoony sort of way, Princess, sat encased in a crystal orb guarded by the snoozing dragon of the game's title. Scantily clad and talking like a fantasy bimbo, the princess directed Dirk to a magic sword. Isaiah was as cool and unshakable as ever as his gnarled talons snapped the joystick to the left and right, avoiding the dragon as it gave chase. This is it, Jade pointed out. What is Becky asked, leaning toward Jade without taking her eyes off the game. He's going to freaking beat it, I whispered in awe. After an exciting chase, Isaiah's knight seized the magic sword, skewered the big green beast through the heart, and rescued the busty damsel from her prison. She leaped into Dirk's arms, cartoony breasts pressed to his chest, and nuzzled his neck in thankful adoration. Dirk grinned, and the game faded to black. For the first time since the quarters had dropped, Isaiah loosed his grip from the controls and stepped silently from the cabinet. Holy shit, said Connor. It was quiet for a few moments before Paul finally asked, What do we do now? There was another stark silence. Eventually, Paul answered his question with another one. Pizza? We sat on the cold floor in a tight circle, 
music filling the air around us as the girls complained about the dirt until we found a towel to lay out for them. I'd ordered a veggie pizza for Isaiah after his little only inferior humans eat meat speech, but he insisted that pizza was not sustenance anyway. Why? Paul asked. Yeah, Jade joined in. Like you can't eat it or you just don't want to. You may have billions of years of digestive evolution on humanity. I can eat it. I don't want to. Bullshit, Barrett said, covering the comment with a fake cough. Try it, Paul said, lifting a slice to Isaiah. Yeah, I said. All the cool kids are doing it. A chant broke out. Pizza, pizza. Isaiah raised his hands in resignation, long clawed digits in the air, and forfeiting, took a slice. He removed the ornate chain from around his nose, his reptilian mannerisms on full display as he lifted his head, bird-like, and the slice vanished with two predatory chomps. He shook his head, his gullet undulating as the pizza was carried down his long esophagus. Happy? Isaiah asked, black tongue moving over his chops. I am, Jade nodded. I laughed at the ridiculousness of the moment. Was everyone deliriously tired, or had we all adjusted to the insanity this quickly? It's true that Isaiah himself was pretty disarming. His physical presence was intimidating, sure, but as I said, we'd all seen images and video of Emi thousands of times before, heard the weird accents, seen the robes and jewelry and all. Isaiah seemed more than adjusted to the social and behavioral norms of American humans, so much so, even that I began to wonder, how long have you been here, dude? I came here with you, remember? I was made to hide under a blanket in the back of your mom's car. No, man, here, as in Earth. How long have you been on Earth? It's almost the anniversary of my arrival here, Isaiah said, lifting a second slice of pizza. In a few days, it'll have been 13 years. Emma was the first to do the math and make a connection. You were one of the first. Isaiah swallowed another slice of pizza and nodded. I was small then, just an apprentice, the student of a scientist, gifted. I was brought to learn under the leadership of the small and newly formed Syad. You have to understand, I was like you guys then, space aliens, adventure on another world. It all seemed too incredible for a young apprentice to pass up. I had no idea what was truly at stake. In his posts, the historian spoke of the Fermi paradox and type 1, type 2, and type 3 civilizations. He was right to wonder whether a civilization would evolve in their collective cruelty just as they evolved biologically. The truth is that they do. But civilizations aren't collectively cruel, Paul interrupted. They can be cruel, sure, but they're also capable of a lot of good. Isaiah shook his head. Good is an exception to the rule. Your Jesus of Nazareth, your Mahatma Gandhi, your Martin Luther King Jr., all of them exceptional, and you killed them. These no more represent the common character of the human race than an albino hunchback dwarf represents your physicality. Well, damn, someone whispered. That sounds bad. The more technologically sophisticated a civilization becomes, the more it creates a consumerist need that few natural habitats can actually sustain. 
Fast food requires animals to be born and bred into abject cruelty, shot full of mutating drugs, only to create processed poison that makes humans fat, lazy, and diseased. Fast fashion and digital addiction yields factory pollutants, human trafficking, child slavery, rampant narcissism, and eventually crowded landfills as people buy things they don't need just to throw them away. Yeah, it's not good, Jade said. And it's not just that humans don't care, Isaiah continued. They don't want to care. Humans will do anything to avoid disrupting their comfort, even when their comfort is killing them. Sure, this pair of genes supports the destruction of the planet and the enslavement of children, but I want the genes. Sure, this hamburger is the accumulation of unimaginable torture and toxicity, but it tastes good. And so evolves the human race. So the Emi aren't here to help, Connor asked. What, they want to secretly wipe us out because we suck so bad? Because they suck so bad. Isaiah corrected, the Emi surpassed the collective sociopathic disposition of humanity a million years ago. We are a type 3 civilization. The historian said a type 3 civilization was determined by the civilization's ability to harness the power of its entire galaxy, I interjected. That's right. So I don't see us running into Emi satellites or some energy-sapping Emi structure built around the Milky Way's sun. The Emi are not from the Milky Way galaxy. What about the probe? Emma asked. The Pioneer 10. Isn't that how you found us? We aren't capable of sending probes beyond our galaxy. We knew about the probe and the crude little engraving on its plates long before it got lost somewhere around Jupiter. The Emi civilization can monitor much of what transpires within the observable universe. The probe and its plates were just a way to show up without crashing the party. Like a bunch of damn vampires, Connor said, shaking his head. Can't come in unless we invite them. It still makes no sense. Emma said, if the entire Emi agenda is just a veneer disguising some evil scheme, then why the Syad? Why NARS? Isaiah seemed to think for a moment. Isaiah seemed to think for a moment. Dr. Harry Harlow was an American scientist famous for his experiments on rhesus monkeys. To track the correlation between companionship and cognitive development, Harlow developed sophisticated ways to torture primates. He would banish newborn monkeys to isolation chambers for the first two years of their lives to verify the predictable hypothesis that those same monkeys would emerge emotionally and mentally disturbed. Harlow forced screaming monkeys into mating scenarios by way of a device he called the rape rack. Unsatisfied with his initial isolation chamber research, Dr. Harlow developed a device he christened the Pit of Despair in which newborn monkeys were left alone in total darkness for up to a full year. Zero times, Becky interrupted. He gets an F. I hate this guy. He's dead, Isaiah shrugged. Died in 81 as a somewhat respected, somewhat controversial figure. Why the hell did you just go on about this guy? Barrett spoke up, clearly frustrated by this doctor we'd never heard of moments before, but now uniformly despised. Isaiah went on. 
The point is that ideas like oppression, cruelty, even the cleansing of an entire world population mean little when the powerful become convinced of their superiority. To think of the Emi as evil and insane isn't helpful. It's dismissive. From what we can tell, Dr. Harlow never empathized with the monkeys he tormented because they were a means to an end. Perhaps some small part of him found their suffering regrettable, but to not carry on with his experiments? Absurd. After all, the presumed suffering of a lesser species is certainly a necessary evil in light of the greater good. What I don't get, said Paul, is how advancing our technology and getting us all into NARS is going to help the Emi overthrow planet Earth. The plan unfolds in strategic phases, Isaiah said, leaning into the circle. The Emi could have shown up and obliterated life on Earth in one fell swoop, but their idea isn't destruction, it's conquest. They want to colonize the Earth, said Jade. Isaiah gave Jade a slow nod. And they accomplished this with a website? Becky asked. The sophistication of Emi weaponry outgrew clubs and projectiles millennia ago. Our weapons are weapons of enslavement, not weapons of death. Well, great, Barrett shrugged. NARS is a phenomenon, for sure, but there are still millions of people on the planet who don't even use it. Who don't have computers at all. Not yet, Isaiah said, slowly reaching a long green arm into his robes. But that's changing soon. Isaiah drew his arm out from within his robes and revealed what looked like a small, thin, rectangular slab of transparent glass. The slab in the palm of his hand, Isaiah extended the strange artifact into the center of the circle, all of us looking on in silence. Becky broke the silence when she asked, They're going to take over the world with a coaster? Isaiah touched a fingertip to the slab and seemed to draw invisible shapes on its surface. Immediately, the slab came alive with brightly illuminated digital imagery, more sophisticated and vibrant than any arcade game I'd ever seen. He continued moving his finger about the surface of the slab, which I now gathered was a kind of screen, and in another few moments, we all seemed to simultaneously realize that Isaiah's fingertips seemed to be interacting with, even manipulating, the actual graphics interface of the glass surface. What the hell? Barrett said, the first to voice what we were all thinking. Isaiah finished whatever he was doing, then turned the little rectangle toward us, revealing what appeared to be a new, fancier version of the NARS login screen lit up on the slab's little surface. Is that NARS on that little thing? This is the NARS slate, Isaiah announced, nodding down at the rectangle. With it... NARS users can access an updated version of the network without needing either a computer or even a modem. How does it get a phone connection? Paul asked, squinting at the device. It doesn't. It connects to APEP. APEP? Jade asked. Isn't that what sustains the internet on the EMI planet? The thing our network connection is based on? APEP is a living network. Isaiah said. It connects life through a system of organic vibrations in the atmosphere. That makes no sense, Barrett said blankly. I think I get it, Jade said thoughtfully. I know some stuff. You don't freaking get it, Connor said, shaking his head. 
It's like radio waves, Jade fired back. You know, in the air and all that. That's not entirely off, Isaiah said. Forget how the damn thing works, I demanded. Right, Isaiah agreed. The point is that when the Syad distributes NAR slates on a worldwide level, the internet activity, geographic whereabouts, private communication, and photographic record of most human beings on Earth will soon be fed directly back to the Syad, who will, in turn, maintain a direct and constant line of information dissemination with the majority of the planet. Then what? Connor asked. Neurological addiction. Isaiah went on. The constant flow of digital information releases in the human brain a strong but brief dopamine fix. With enough time, the EMI have created a world population of digitally addicted drones, helplessly tethered to the very thing by which the EMI will ultimately puppeteer them. So what? Paul asked. They get people addicted to the little coaster thing, then they use it to tell us what to do? It's not that simple. Isaiah said, the Syad won't simply tell you what to do. They are slowly shaping the collective consciousness of the human race. They don't have to flash obey messages on your screens. They shift herd thinking through social influence via NARS. Make people aware of the same things. Get people thinking the same things. Seeking after the same approval. Craving the same fix. Envying the same lifestyles. Before long, they not only have the world in the palm of their hand, we want to be there, and we don't even realize what's happened. Damn, Connor said after a brief silence. That's some they-live-level shit. Okay, great, fine, Barrett said, squinting and pinching the bridge of his nose. What the hell are we supposed to do about any of that? How do a bunch of teenagers eating pizza in an arcade possibly thwart an alien conspiracy to enslave the minds of the human race? Isaiah turned to Barrett with a look of cool intensity, all of us observing his sincerity in one quiet moment before he spoke a single word that summarized his plan. Revolution, he said, fastening the gold chain around his snout again. I guess he'd had enough pizza. proliferation of the word virus you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on twitter at the word virus and instagram at spread the word virus and at the word 